The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Hello, welcome to this episode of Setting the Record Straight. My name is Gordon Runyon, I'll be your host this week. And with me is my illustrious wife, Joyce. Hello. Hello. And I do my best in my spare time to serve as the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari, New Mexico. And I've got a couple of things that I want to talk to you about. The podcast is going to be divided in two parts. The second part, after we get back from our break, will be an excerpt of a sermon that I preached where the topic is authority and mm-hmm. submission and service. And I remember that. And where does leadership come from? <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you remember that. And <clears throat> I'm sure you'll go over it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought about maybe I need to, maybe I need to do some like uh, preemptive introduction of that sermon and what I was trying to do, but I think I kind of try to explain it. Yeah. And it just occurred to me that if how I explained it in the sermon isn't enough, isn't really clear, it's not going to be good for me to try to do it again. (laughs) Then send your messages too. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The bottom line, the the bottom (laughs) line, Gordon at the internet <laughs> dot Google. <laughs> right. uh, it really boils down to some people get me and yeah. a lot of people don't. And mm. so That's there's life. not much to be done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's every day, man. <laughs> and so that will be after the break. We won't come back after the break. It'll just be cutting right into, cutting right into the sermon. Yeah. However, I just wanted to let you know, uh, just to ease your mind, that's not what you will hear after the break is not the entire sermon that I spent about 20 minutes prior to what you will hear talking about the theological foundations and the implications for the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God. So we talked about prophecy, Daniel chapter 7, and the Son of Man going up to the Ancient of Days and being granted a kingdom. Now, just if somebody would want to hear the whole entire sermon, yeah, is yeah. there a place that they could do that if they so desired? Uh, yeah, there is, but you almost have to you have to contact me, and I'll give you a link. So, if you're at Facebook and and you're interested in the whole sermon, you can just hit me up. Because you know it was quality. all right it was quality it was quality information but before the break i wanted to talk about something and i don't think that this would merit having an entire podcast to itself okay so i just wanted to talk about it briefly and maybe i've mentioned it in passing in other places i don't remember but i just wanted to talk for a moment about an article that appears at the website scientificamerican.com I think it's related to a magazine, Scientific American maybe, America is that a magazine? I think Scientific America is 
but I don't. It's not my usual <laughs> right. reading material. Well, this so. is the scientificamerican.com. Mm -hmm. And if you go there and search for the article, the article title is, Are We Living in a Computer Simulation? And I wanted to bring this up because in it, I feel like the atheists give away the whole epistemological house, mm. so to speak. Yeah. Because a lot of the time, if you're dealing with the so-called quote-unquote new atheists, one of the things that they will say when you get to talking about truth and what is truth, yeah. one of their common definitions of truth is, truth is that which corresponds with reality. Okay. Which, if you're a perceptive listener, you just heard a tautology there because... Uh, truth and reality kind of have to be the same thing. And so truth is that which corresponds to reality is really just a way of pushing the question back one step because now you ask, well, what is reality? Mm -hmm. And how do you know what it is? Mm -hmm. And right here in this article, this is where uh, the current atheist slash agnostic rock star Neil deGrasse Tyson Mm -hmm. who has been on the Big Bang Theory and stuff like that. He's, he's even been on some late shows. Uh, right, so yeah. he's he's like the rock star. Everybody loves him. He's the smartest mm -hmm. man in the world. Mm -hmm. And he just gave away the house from an epistemological standpoint. If truth is that which corresponds to reality, then Neil deGrasse Tyson just admitted there's no way to really know what reality is. And this... The reason that, that I bring this up and I, I want people to know that it's out there is because I think it would be good for you to kind of have this in your back pocket when you're doing apologetics and when you're having these arguments and stuff. When you're arguing from a presuppositional standpoint instead of arguing about the evidence, one of the things we'd like to do is point out that the person that we're talking to really has no basis for what they're saying or why they believe it. Like, yeah. for instance, with morality, if you don't believe in God, then you can't, you can't have good and evil. Yeah. And, well, so let me get down to it. This article was about a symposium that was hosted at the New York Museum of Natural History, and Neil deGrasse Tyson was the moderator. And this has probably been a couple of years ago, but the article is still there. And... They had a panel staffed with philosophers and IT experts and theoretical physicists and just all the heavy hitters. Yeah. And the whole question that they were going to argue and explore was, is it possible that we're living in a computer simulation? Or is it possible that what we think is reality is really just simulated reality? Mm -hmm. the, the place in the article that I thought was really important was where... They said that Neil deGrasse Tyson puts the odds at 50-50 on this question. Are we yeah. living in a computer simulation? So Neil deGrasse Tyson basically has to flip a coin. He doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it said in one place, he said he thought the odds could be quite high. Uh, so that's something else. Yeah. So the smartest man in the world thinks it's 50-50 that the reality that we all live in isn't real. And I think that's significant when you start talking about epistemologies mm -hmm. and how you know what you know.
That's a lot of mental health issues <laughs> for, <laughs> for a lot of our society that they don't know what's reality. So, you know, to right. say that that's all of our society. Wow. Well, that's another apologetics question. I forget who I heard this from, but I've used it uh, to what I thought was some amount of success. I've used it before in witnessing the question being uh, when somebody talks about, well, I don't need God. I just live by rational thought and logic and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Then to ask them something like, you know, every one of our mental hospitals is filled with people who are adamant that they are being rational and logical in everything that they believe. Mm -hmm. But it's obvious that that's not true. They're insane. And so the question is, how do you know you don't belong with them? Mm -hmm. Because they think they're being rational and logical too. So how do you know? And that puts them on the spot because the only way they could know if it's, is if there was an objective way outside themselves to verify what they think. But the atheist can't do that because the truth is all self-contained inside of his own head. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention a couple of reasons that were listed in the article for why this theory even has any weight with the scientists. Mm -hmm. One of them was interesting they, where a guy said he was a IT specialist and so very big into programming and computers and, and all that newfangled stuff. Mm, yeah. So he said the thing that makes him think we might be living in a simulated reality is that the more we investigate the world around us, the more we find what he called error-correcting codes. Now, I had to Google error-correcting error codes and... To just really make sure... I don't even know what he's talking about. Yeah. I'm not an IT guy at all. And even after reading a little bit about it, I feel like I've... I don't really understand. Yeah. But to me, I think street level, it means that well, an error-correcting code in computer programming means that you have you have this program within the, within and underneath all your other programs, and this program is able to detect bad code mm -hmm. that happens. However, like you transfer a file over yeah, here, yeah, you got something that's degraded it, or right. gotten infected. Well, or... there are error-correcting codes that are able to spot that by themselves mm -hmm. and even fix it. Really high level tech stuff and so this IT guy is saying well these exist in nature and we find more of them as we investigate and I think about the fact that apparently your white blood cells can recognize cancer cells right away you know they know mm -hmm. that this doesn't belong here and they'll do what they can to fight that and apparently these exist in other places and so he is thought is it really surprising well, to some people, apparently, it's mind boggling because what that means is that there is a right and a wrong with all of these systems mm -hmm. and that the systems themselves recognize that. Yeah. And so where did they get that information to recognize? Yeah. And, and so that's very telling. And then another person at the symposium said that the thing that the thing that sways him in this direction is that the more they explore more more scientific areas 
the more they find out that everything seems to be governed by mathematics and rules. Hmm. And he even, <clears throat> he even said, well, this is how it would be. If you were programming your own world, you would have to do all the math. And, and, <laughs> and nothing could get outside that math. And so <clears throat> he's talking about rigid, rigid mathematical rules and laws of physics and mm -hmm. stuff are just what you would expect if we're a simulated reality thing. So mm. it's like if you lived under a biodome and you didn't yeah. know it and you just kept walking, eventually you'd bump into the dome yeah. and scientists keep bumping into rules and laws mm -hmm. and things that seem to be inflexible and they've been in place forever. <clears throat> hmm. Now the question then that was interesting was they started asking everybody, well, if this is true, if we are living in a simulated reality, what does that matter? And their answer was, well, I guess it really doesn't. And, <laughs> and one of their pieces hmm. of advice was, you know, if somebody is running the universe for their own entertainment, then that probably means that you and I should try to be as interesting as possible so they don't eliminate us. Mm. <clears throat> so what makes you interesting? Yeah, <laughs> how do they just define it. that? That's just it. And how are you going to be interesting when every thought that you have is part of the simulation? Yeah. Well, and then eventually they get into the topic of God, and at one point, one of these atheists admits that if we are living in a simulated reality, he said that kind of blows open the door to things like resurrection and eternal life because it would be super easy for whoever's running the program to just run it again or run it in a different way and mm -hmm. bring back all the characters. And just to start over. So I thought that was fascinating that their grasp on reality is so limited and so tenuous that now they now they're back around to thinking maybe there is life after life and anyway i thought that was fascinating and then somebody asked uh so this designer of the simulated reality would that be god and you could see i mean it's a written page i didn't see anything but yeah. You could almost feel them cringe. What? And, we didn't and, uh, say that. <laughs> right. And so the one guy says, uh, oh, no, that's not what it means. I mean, we we make things like Super Mario Brothers, and we're not God, even though we're in total control of his existence. And, and so just because somebody greater than us is controlling us, that doesn't mean they're God. And so they really kind of do whatever they can gymnastics right yeah. and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness mm. like romans one says and anyway i just found that fascinating so scientific american and the title of the article is are we living in a computer simulation you might want to bookmark that if you have lots of interactions with unbelievers uh, because when Neil deGrasse Tyson says it's 50-50, whether the reality that we study is even real, yeah, that blows their epistemology completely away. 
Yeah. How then do you make any pronouncements on truth or? Well, no, they can do it anyway. They don't know. So if you don't know, you can't say. Right. And there to, you go. Right. They do it even though they have no basis for doing it. Yeah. But because they're disconnected from any uh, anything, then you know, then <laughs> surely they can say something that's true and unbiased, and you know that's ridiculous. Yeah, for no reason. You know, everybody's worldview is related to some perspective that spins how you see things, and you definitely see that in these gentlemen and how they look at the world and then right. say, okay, so since we've gotten rid of God, then we have to have something else that's like God, but not God. And, <laughs> right. uh, you know, just kind of ridiculous. An intelligent designer, though, is yeah. kind of what they're seeing. It just reminds me of the, in thinking themselves wise, they become as fools. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, y'all, hope that's helpful to you. You might go and look that up, see what you think. And we're going to go ahead and take our break. And Joyce and I are done. It'll just be the Aww. sermon coming up after this. All righty. Uh, I hope you get it. <laughs> I hope it's helpful to Send you. Send comments. I'd be interested in hearing. <laughs> <laughs> to remember, Gordon at the Internet. <laughs> Send everything to Gordon at the Internet dot Google. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. I want to shift gears from that. There's another little lesson that I want to show you. What I want to show you is the passage that we just read out of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It's really a contrast between human thoughts on authority and God's thoughts on authority and power. Before I do that, I want to introduce some language to you that I think will make things clear. We're going to talk about things like submission and authority and subjection and obedience, but all of those words kind of have baggage. And especially within the churches, they have churchy baggage attached to them. And I would like to find a way to speak about them without all the baggage. And I don't mean this to sound flippant, and I don't mean it to sound disrespectful, but I'm going to use kind of street language that comes from the world of professional wrestling <laughs> all right I, I don't mean any disrespect but these this language is going to help you let me show you how 
Since the early 90s, when Vince McMahon, the owner of the World Wrestling Federation, when he went to Congress and testified that in, in, in wrestling, there's no, real, there's no real competition taking place. There is a lot of athleticism, and, and people really do get hurt, and they're subjecting their bodies to all sorts of punishment. But there's no competition taking place. Everybody in the ring is working together to put on a show. He testified that in Congress because what was happening is the government was seeking to regulate pro wrestling the same way they regulate boxing because they thought it was real. Uh, I'm serious. You had the whole government everywhere thinking that it was real. So if we find somebody who at the time thought it was real, you can excuse them a little bit. They're at least as smart as the government. Okay, but... But now that Vince McMahon went and testified that way, now he doesn't have to deal with the boxing commissions and stuff like that. He can do what he wants. Since that time, professional wrestling jargon has been finding its way into the culture. And I want to introduce you to two terms that the wrestlers use. One is to go under, and the other one is to put a man over. What does that mean? It means when it's time for the match to begin, they already know who's going to win and who's going to lose. But the way the wrestlers talk about it is, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to put myself under, which means I know I'm eventually going to lose with the, with the goal of putting this over, other guy over. And so that's the way it goes. If I go out there and I know I'm going to let you win, you're going to pin me at some point, that's me putting you over. And to get over with the crowd means that they love you and everything's great. If you're a heel and you get over, that means they hate you and, and they'll buy tickets just to see you get beat up and all that. So you have those two concepts. Every wrestler goes out there knowing I'm either going under or I'm going to put this other guy over or maybe he's gonna put me over, okay? So get that language. And I'm telling you that in every one of your relationships that you have, relationships with your family, relationships with your workplace, your neighbors, your church, your government, somebody's going over and somebody's going under. <laughs> and the way, that, the way that the pagan unbelievers the way they do these things is by putting somebody over and then giving him the power to make sure that everybody else is under, okay? And when the Bible uses submission language, it will say things like, the wives should submit themselves to their husbands. The, the servants should be in subjection to the masters. That word is generally a Greek word, hupotasso, which means to put yourself under. That's literally what it means, to put yourself under. So when the wife is told to submit to your husband, that's not the same as her being told, do whatever your husband tells you to do. Obey his word in every way. That's not it. What is she being told to do? Wives, Christian wives, put your husbands over. You be willing to go under so that your husband can go over. Now, conversely, it says the same thing to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? It says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that though he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, and was found in the form of a servant. Servants, by the way, 
there's nobody under the servants. If you go over and become a, if you go under and become a servant, that means you're putting everybody else over. Okay? And so then in the same breath that the apostle tells wives to put their husbands over, it's telling the husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And what does that amount to? I got to be willing to put myself under. I want my wife to go over. I want my children to go over. What does that look like in real life? It means that, uh, it means that a dad might, might rather go fishing. He might rather have no, no commitments. He might rather do with his time what he would prefer to do. But for the sake of someone that he's trying to put over in the long term, what does he do? He stays in a job that he might not like. He works on days when he'd rather stay home and he goes out and he pours himself into those that he wants to see go over. How does that work? It works beautifully. Anytime that you see a man doing that, you know what his, his wife and kids think? They're going to put him over, right? The child who comes to understand how his parents have done nothing but try to put him over, what's he going to do? He's going to put them over. Say, my parents, they're the bomb. There's nothing like them, right? That's how it's supposed to work, Christianly. But what do we do in the churches then? In the churches, generally what we do is as soon as we organize a church, we say, okay, at the top of the stack, we're going to have the pastor. And somewhere below him, we're going to have the elders. And it'll be the elders' job to keep putting the pastor over. And then underneath the elders, we'll have a board of deacons. They're under, and they're going to make sure the elders and the pastor go over, right? And then... We'll have the lowly people in the pew and they're, they're just under. <laughs> they put everybody else over. Listen, that is not the way that Jesus designed his church. That is the way almost every church operates, but that's not the way Jesus said it should be. What did he say? Luke chapter 22, verse 25, the, the disciples were arguing. What were they arguing? Which one of us is the greatest? <laughs> The Gospels show, gospel show the disciples arguing more than once about which one of them was the greatest. And what's Jesus' answer? This is how the Gentiles do things, but it shall not be so among you. He who would be greatest among you must become the slave of all. You want to go over? Put everybody else over. You've got to go under in order to get over. <laughs> right? Yeah. So this professional wrestling language, minus all the baggage of churchiness, if you're hearing me right, what you should be saying now is, well, that seems really simple. <laughs> and it does. It is. And what I want to show you here, then in Acts chapter 1, the, the disciples come together and in verse 6, and they say, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? What are they saying? Lord, you just got over on death. You got over on death and hell itself. And since we're your buddies, maybe it's time for us to go over too. Well, I don't know. Is that what they're really saying? 
Yes, that's what they were saying. <laughs> when you read the Gospels, uh, especially the book of Mark, Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10. In those three chapters, you have Jesus in each one of them telling his disciples plainly, I've got to go up to Jerusalem, and there at Jerusalem, the authorities will uh, bind the Son of Man, they will spit on him, they will mock him and scourge him and crucify him, and on the third day I will be raised from the dead. So three times he predicts his death, burial, and resurrection, and the disciples only ever hear him saying, I've got to go to Jerusalem and put myself under. And the disciples in every one of those instances, their response is, well, if he's going over, or if he's going under, somebody else has got to go over, right? <laughs> Who's he putting over? And so what you have is in one place, Jesus makes this prediction and Peter comes to him and says, oh no, Lord, let it never be. If anybody's got to go over, it's got to be you. You can't be going under. It's Satan that's got to go under, right, Jesus? And Jesus said, no, you're Satan. You get behind me. You don't understand. I've got to go under so that God can put me over, right? And then in another place, uh, he makes the same, the same prediction. And immediately on the heels of that prediction, listen, guys, I've got to go way under before I'm going to go over. And the response of James and John is, Hey, we'd like to go over with you. Put us on your right hand and on your left when you're over. How about that? So the whole message about I've come to go under, James and John hear it as mm, somebody's going over. Maybe that's us. Now he rebukes them for that. And they go back and join everybody else. And now they're all grumbling about it. Oh, you want to go over, huh? I wish I had thought of that. Another time he makes that prediction and their response is then they begin to argue among themselves about which one of us is the greatest. At the Lord's Supper, they're having the same argument again. Which one of us is the greatest? Well, I'm Peter. I've obviously got to go over and it's up to you guys to put yourselves under so that I can go over. And what does Jesus say? No. I in the Lord of everything, and I am here among you as a servant. Listen, in Christianity, in the way the world is supposed to work, service is what makes leadership happen. It's not that organizational chart and the titles. The way it should work is that when you see a man doing all the right things inside a church, you hear him teach, you see that his life is is uh, ordered in, the, in, in a consistent way with his teaching, that's the guy you put the title on. Does this make sense? You don't make somebody an elder and then say, all hail the elder, all go under for the sake of putting the elder over. You don't do that. You find a man who has spent his Christian life putting everybody over, and now you make him the elder. This isn't rocket science, but you, you, why have you never been in a church that's like this, though? Why has every church you've ever been in, one in which the pastor is the top man, and heaven help you if you touch God's anointed? 
He should be the servant. Some of you have been blessed by God to find pastors who really are servants and, and really do that work, but there's a whole lot of churches that are just not organized that way. What gives me authority as a pastor over you? If you go to a different church, some of you are going to wind up in a different church sometime. Listen, they're going to tell you, this is the elder. And you can give them the benefit of the doubt for a while. But you need to begin to see, here is a man who's wanting to put everybody else over. Is it just that the whole congregation thinks that he needs to be put over? Is he demanding to be put over by the rest of the congregation? Is that how it works? Run. Here they are. Jesus has gone over on death and on hell itself. He's taken the championship belt away from death who had been undefeated for thousands of years. Jesus is now the heavyweight champion, right? He's gone over. Can't go over more than Jesus has gone over. And now the apostles are like, hey, now we're going over. Their, their question to Jesus was not so much about the timing of the end times or anything like that. It was this. It was, hey, Jesus, is it time for us to have our thrones yet? You've obviously got your throne. Maybe we should get ours now. He didn't rebuke them so much as just, hold on, hold on. You're, there's something you need in order to really understand this. The whole time they were with Jesus for three years, they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Something needs to happen. What is that something? They need the Holy Spirit to come upon them and fill them with actual power, not just the power of titles. Later on, we won't see it, but later on in chapter 1, Peter, before he receives this Holy Spirit and actual power, he gets concerned about, hey, there's supposed to be 12 apostles and there's only 11 now, so we need to fill this, this title with somebody else. In our organizational chart, we've got Jesus up here and we've got the 12 apostles beneath him, and one of those 12 is no longer here. He just hanged himself on a tree. So... There's a vacant spot there. We need to fill that. Now, I'm not saying he was wrong to do it, but as you read through the rest of the book of Acts, guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether there were 11 or whether there were 12 or whether they were a council with authority. It doesn't matter. The one place where they needed, maybe needed to be that council of authority was Acts chapter 15 when they really had a thing to argue about. Would have been nice maybe to have the apostles stand together. Oh, the 12 have spoken and now we're done with this argument. They didn't do that. Now the man they filled the post with, he did the job by all accounts. He did the job really well. He gave his life as a martyr, witnessing in foreign lands and all of that. So nothing, no knock on Matthias. But when Paul comes along, Paul then in, action, in 1 Corinthians 15, he refers to the whole group of them as the 12 so he doesn't have an issue with it. But I'll tell you what, the reason Paul wound up in so much trouble is because he wasn't part of that. He, nobody recognized his name as one of the 12. And what was, his, what was his response? Do I not do all the things that an apostle is supposed to do by the power of the Holy Spirit? And if I do, why are you worried about the title? Amen? 
So what I'm telling you is in every one of your situations, in every one of your circumstances, every one of your relationships, the key to going over is what? Put yourself under. Become the servant. He who wants to go over has to put everybody else over. That's the only way Jesus intends for it to work. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.